Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. back for another edition of Terry's Talking, David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, alongside, as always, Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer. And Terry is fresh off of a book signing on Tuesday night. And we're taping this on Wednesday. Terry, how was the book signing last night? Yeah, well, it was a talk and everything at the Wilby Library, and it was really nice. I, mean, I think the room held like 60 or 65, and they had an overflow crowd, so we had a that was nice. And it's just glad to see, I think people are you know, anxious to get out now. And look, the library talks are great because it costs you nothing to come. I even hand out free faith columns. Now, of course, I'll try to sell you some books because it raises money for the library and that. But, you know, otherwise, um, it's it's just a, it was really a nice thing. It was a wonderful crowd. Um, I forgot how nice downtown Willoughby is. I hadn't been there for several years, you know, right on the lake and uh, some cool old buildings and that. It was it was really a good uh, a good time. So we're doing one more of these things in the, in the, in the near future, and that's next Tuesday, the 14th, at uh, the Walls of Books in Parmatown. And I will, it's a bookstore in Parmatown, Walls of Books. That'll be at 6.30, and uh, they will, I'll do a talk. And basically, it's just like I would do a library event, only it'll be at that uh, bookstore. Sweet. And uh, it's always good to support bookstores. We need more of them, that's for sure. Yeah, so it's a newer one, and I grew up just down the street from Parmatown at Westminster Drive. That was the other reason I took it. I got a good excuse to go to the old neighborhood. All right, so let's get into this today, Terry. Um, we're going to start with Browns and kind of the story of the last couple of days. And I know you wrote a column about this today. So the New York Times has done a big investigative piece on that there are many more women uh, involved with the Sean Watson and the massage therapists. Uh, the, the Times found that Watson understated how many massage therapists he used and the Times found that he booked with at least 66 different women between the fall of 2019 and the spring of 2021. That's 17 months. And Terry, today you put up a column just and you hearkened back to the press conference that the Browns held when they announced the Watson trade. And well, you know, what we heard was we've researched this, we've researched this, we've researched this, and we're comfortable with it. And you asked today in your column, well, how comfortable can the Browns be right now? Which I thought was really the, the, the right question to ask. And that's kind of where you're at with this, right, isn't it? When you look back at that press conference, even if you look at some of the pictures, uh, Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski looked about as comfortable 
as if they were like in a second grade in the principal's office. You know, I mean, they like, I want to be anywhere else. And they could say whatever they want, but the body language, and you don't have to be one of the experts in that, could tell. In fact, I had some people from other uh, teams that watched that and said, boy, oh boy, uh, you could just feel, while they're saying they're comfortable, they certainly didn't look like it. And so now, I, is, I think it's one of those things in a closed room where everybody's talking about this, yeah, this will work, this will go, but when you got to go public with it, and this is before, remember, the newer revelations came out, and, you know, I'll ask you first, David, you know, there's a second part of that story, which I'm writing a column about for later in the week, the Houston Texans role in this. Can you want to explain exactly what they were up to? Right. So what we learned from this time was that the Texans were providing Watson with some uh, non-disclosure agreements that he could use with the massage therapist to get them to sign so that everything that happened would remain confidential. What we don't know is that might just be a standard thing that they give to all their players for when a player for whatever off, you know, out of the building, you know, if you have a, a, a psycho, a psychological uh, sports psychologist, I'll get it right. Um, yeah, different, I mean, you know, players, players have their own people that they use outside of the team. And I'm the thing that we're not sure of is if that's just part of what they do is give these non-disclosure agreements so that the players private stuff can remain private. Or if this was something they did specifically for Watson, that's kind of the question that's really hanging out there. Yeah, right. That now. would be the one thing. All right. Who else have you had these two? Secondly, they were supplying him with a suite at the Houstonian hotel, which I imagine is a real nice place. Um, you know, I've talked to other people, other there. It's like when you ha are treated, you know, you're treated a in the doctor's office, B at the training facility, or C, say you have a game the next day and you're at the team hotel, they set up a suite or two at the hotel. In other words, it's an area where there's trainers or other people around, so you don't run into stuff like this. That is business. And so this is, it just seemed odd to me. Why would the Texans be involved with the hotel, with the non-disclosure, when it's like, look, Deshaun, just come on down the facility. You can even bring your person in. You bring your person in here. You know, we got... These these facilities where these players are have massive medical areas and everything. It's that so this is that's an odd thing. And I'll tell you, if they were up to something wrong there, the NFL should really look into the Texans too. Oh, and I'm sure they will. I I, yeah. I think there's enough there that they need. To, they're going to need to go in and talk to some people. There's there's no doubt about that. And and find out what they. It all goes back to the old, what the old political question from. What Watergate? What did they know, and when did they know it? Right? And, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the main. And all, and some people will say, well, maybe this exonerates the Browns or whatever. But you know, we all heard about how the Browns they they did their due diligence and all this other stuff. And um, so, I, mean, I guess the thing is, if the New York Times found this out, why wouldn't either the Browns found it out? Why wouldn't the NFL be aware of it? Because I would think the NFL would have been on top of this too had they been aware so we will see as you said maybe it, it isn't what it seems but it, it looks bad um i hate david i hate this story i absolutely loathe this story i hate everything about it and i'm just feel so bad for the fans of the browns who love this team and i'm getting email after email about how they feel like their hearts being torn out they can't believe what has happened to their browns um 
I'm sure there's still the same few folks that say, I just want a quarterback and I want to win. Well, everyone here does want that, but you can't just grab somebody without doing your homework when you know that he didn't even play in 2020 because Houston didn't know what to do with him. Yeah, and Terry, I want to ask you, so as journalists... Excuse me, David. 2021. He played in 20. They went 4-12. and 21, they just kind of kept him on the shelf and paid him because not to play because they didn't know what to do with all this mess. Right, right. Um, sorry, Terry, I, was, I wanted to get your thoughts on something. So this 24th accuser who has filed suit, th- this suit went further than I think most, if not all of the other ones. It was more explicit, and Watson goes from being a kind of a passive recipient yeah. to an active participant for to, just to keep the, the show family friendly here. Uh, when you go back to the press conference that the Browns had, and as journalists, we're on the other side. There's a whole other field of people who work in crisis communications, yeah. right? And their job is to help organizations get through tough PR incidents like this. If you have one press conference about one thing and you can weather the storm, there's a way in crisis communications where you can work through things. There's resolution. You can rehabilitate your image or your employee's image or whatever it is. There's a whole field of crisis communication. This has been a press conference and then a, another drip of this and another drip, 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 drip. And it and Kevin Stefanski has to stand up there at every availability and say, I'm letting the legal process play out. And Andrew Barry, whenever he's available, we have to let the legal. It, it's just going to keep going, this drip, drip, drip. And you have to wonder how much of this the Browns can or want to take on. It's it's a never ending. It, it just it doesn't stop. Well, and also until the NFL rules, um, that that that's one of the biggest things. Now, David, you know, the NFL said a while ago that they were kind of getting close to a decision. But I just wonder now, with, especially with the stuff with the, the Texans coming up, if that's going to uh, prolong their time frame. Because one of the things the NFL has had in the past, sometimes they jumped and came up with um, – you know, a decision on a player and a, in a situation. And then they found out they were premature and a lot more came out and they looked bad and either had to go back and redo the penalty or so. I mean, I saw a pro football talk uh, thing. Uh, Mike Florio wrote that did uh, they put him basically back in limbo again, you know, like, like last year as the, as this whole thing wears out. So uh, I want to say a couple other things. Number one is, this decision, even if the football people were all for it, I'm, they say they were, so we'll, we'll, we'll go on that premise. But even if they were, it's an ownership decision because this is not a pure football decision. This is how your franchise is going to be viewed and all these things. So this lays really at the desk of the Haslam's. This was their decision because, I mean, in the past, I know uh, the football people wanted to hire McDermott, the guy who now coaches the Buffalo Bills. And there was some minority support for Hugh Jackson, but he was the main guy that Sashi Brown and those guys wanted to hire. Well, the Haslam's overruled it and hired McDermott. And that's hap- that happens at other teams. You know, as hired uh, Freddie Kitchens. Hired... No, 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 no. This was uh, way back when, Hugh Jackson, the Hugh Jackson. Hired. Oh, yeah, you said they hired McDermott. I'm sorry, they hired Hugh Jackson. Yeah, hired yes. Hugh Jackson over McDermott. Excuse gotcha. me. The, the final two were McDermott and Jackson. Thank you. Let me clarify it. The football people backed McDermott. 
there was some support for Jackson. He was clearly number two, but you know they went with um, uh, they went ownership went with uh, went with uh, Jackson, and so it's it's not unprecedented at all. Basically, as one uh, GM told me, half the time I get to hire a coach, and half the time ownership is. I try to get a couple candidates together that I could live with any of them, and you know which is just smart. The guy's been around. But when you're talking about something as big a ramifications for your franchise as this, that's an ownership decision. I mean, there's a reason we hate to – I mean, hey, the Steelers needed a quarterback. They didn't get involved in this mess. Yeah, and there's no sign of it uh, slowing down. I guess to wrap up this segment, Terry, do you think the Browns are surprised by what has come out this last week, or do you get the sense that the research they did, that they kind of knew that this stuff might – come out eventually well if you base on what you said the press conference then they're they're surprised because they say they act like they had a handle on it and everything else and you know this is the last thing too the sean handled things poorly i asked him directly why did you come to cleveland when you once eliminated them remember there was a story the eliminate in fact i could tell you a column the column that i wrote the first column was don't get involved with watson second column when he's eliminated go I wrote, the Browns will be very happy they didn't get involved with Watson. Then the next day, they had him. And so I asked Deshaun that, and he said, well, no, that's that was a media thing. He said, no, Deshaun, it came off from your camp. He said, well, I never eliminated him. I mean, he just flat out didn't tell the truth on that. And in the same way, you know, he kept saying, remember, he was denying everything. He was denying he ever would want to settle. And the fact was, he did offer settlements before that. So, see, when you talk about things that you know the way that you do your crisis and that is not to uh set yourself up to be caught with these things and unfortunately um for deshaun they left themselves a lot of uh holes and unanswered questions all right terry well let's move on to uh the and another quarterback on the browns roster baker mm-hmm. mayfield and we found out today that he's the browns are going to excuse him from attend, attending mandatory minicamp next week and not find him usually if you don't show up to minicamp yeah. and the team is not cool with that they start finding you a pretty significant amount of money uh this makes sense right yeah right thing to do. And, and you know whereas it, there's an analogous situation in san francisco with jimmy garoppolo but unlike here, that's not contentious, you know, but Garoppolo knows he's recovering from shoulder problems, surgery, and he knows he's that, that uh, his days there with the 49ers are done, and they're trying to see if they can pull a deal for him. I mean, you sit there and go, well, let me just flip quarterbacks here. <laughs> you know, Baker goes there and Garoppolo comes here. Um, it wouldn't be the dumbest thing, by the way. I have to think some more about this, but it would solve a couple of problems. And because you just when the guy knows he's not going to be there, fans have to understand quarterback is just such a different position. The same way when you bring in Deshaun Watson, you are now saying he is the face of your franchise. You know, he is the guy that has to talk to the media and, and just ha- he's the quarterback. That's why it's called, you know, in business, you know, I'm going to quarterback this this committee or whatever it is. I'm going to quarterback as we move from, you know, selling this type of product to that type of product. You know, there always is that. Uh because it is a leadership face of whatever it is in that business. 
I'm still thinking about the Garoppolo for Mayfield. <laughs> You've got yeah. me kind of cycling in my head about yeah, that. Well, I got to look at all the stuff, but it's like, well, you know, it's if you don't have him for a year, you know, if Deshaun's on the wait till next year list. And it's $22 million versus $18 million. It's not yeah, that far and off. And, and the Browns have all kinds of cap room because they, they pay everybody a million dollars the first year, and then, you know, then they figure they'll try to balance the salary cap later on. Yeah, I mean, Mayfield would not be the starter in San Francisco because they love Trey Lance, but it would be a year where he wouldn't have to be in Cleveland. He doesn't want to be here. They don't want him here, and then he could have a fresh start in 2020. Think about it. You go to a good team. You're playing behind a young quarterback who may or may not play well. You don't know how well Trey Lance is going to play. Could get hurt. You know, kind of like, like, like Trubisky last year. Remember, he went to Buffalo, sat there. And now he's a start, probably going to be the starter for the Steelers. I doubt that they will go with a Puckett right, uh, right to start. Um, but it wouldn't be the worst thing for him. I mean, if I'm running, of course, if I was his agent, I never would allow him to talk to Mac, Matt the Racker, Rapper or whatever that was and a couple other things he did. But I would say, sure, bring it on. All right. Well, we can delve back into that maybe next couple of weeks. We'll see what yeah, happens with the Baker Mayfield saga. So. All right, so uh, OTAs are wrapping up today. Actually, tomorrow. There was availability today, but I think they go through tomorrow, if I remember. And then mandatory minicamp is next week, which is Tuesday through Thursday, and then mm-hmm. that'll be it till training camp. So lots of intrigue, even though it's the offseason, and we will see how that what all plays out. I mentioned about the Browns and football for a little bit of relief and fresh air. Uh, I had wrote a column Sunday about, and I got this from some sources, that after the season, the Browns did have a real, you know, they call it self-scout or whatnot, and they really want to throw the ball more and better, regardless of who the quarterback is. And they did stress, we can't just say it was all Baker's fault. Yeah, Baker played poorly because he was hurt, et cetera. But we can't just say that. That's not right. We have some flaws and problems in our system. And even uh, Van Pelt mentioned uh, at his press conference about how they really are looking at a lot of different things in their passing game. I thought that was healthy. That was really needed, and that's good, and we'll see what comes out of it. But I like the fact it wasn't just, oh, Baker was bad. We get a new quarterback. It's all going to be fine. Yeah, and if you think about it, they want to have Nick Chubb play as long as possible. And yeah. if you give him fewer carries, but he's if his yards per carry goes up or he's having more explosive plays, it could be a win-win. It could be a win for the passing game and a win for Nick Chubb where he has – Less carries, more yards, more production potentially. So, and they want to get yeah. more out of the running backs catching the ball. You know, now having Hunt there, they think Ford uh, from Cincinnati can be a weapon out of the backfield. Now, some people with the Browns think Felton could do some of that. Others are pretty lukewarm on him. So, we'll see how that plays out. All right. All right, Terry, let's move on to the Guardians. I, I was thinking about Urban Meyer today when I was thinking about the Guardians. Urban Meyer is known for when he was coaching at Ohio State. In Florida, he would always go to his strength and conditioning guy, Mickey Marathi, and just go up to him and say, hey, how are we doing? <laughs> yeah, Just a regular check-in. So I'm thinking about the Guardians, and uh, how are they doing, Terry? What do you think? I know you, pre- you predicted them to be a little bit under 500 at the beginning yeah, of the season. I think, and- it was, um, I think it was 78 and 84, something like that, 79 and 83, one of those. Um, I think they're doing okay. I mean, the, the – <laughs> They can't get any momentum with the set schedule. I mean, the rain is just—you talk about rain. They always say rain and parade, or rain on their games. Um, and you know, if you look at that situation, and I were to say, okay, 
Oh, Bieber's pitching pretty well. Uh, McKenzie's pitching better than I thought. Polizek has not. Savali's been terrible for the most part. Uh, Quantrill's pretty good, but you're not getting all out of that rotation you thought you would. And the bullpen has been pretty good, but uh, with Class A and, and that, but it, is, it isn't as deep in the past. They're doing okay um, with this. And so, uh, and, and then it, the pattern generally is Tito's teams play better in the second half. The stats show that. So I'm, I'm encouraged. And then look, David, now here's the other. Remember, I said how I load the whole Watson story in that. I love baseball, I like prospects. I like young teens, especially when I see uh, not just glimmers of hope, but really kind of a couple maybe star potential things. Andres Jimenez is going to be a star. I just decided a couple of weeks ago, I'm going out on the limb on this. I really think so. And not especially when I studied his background and saw that he got a million and a half dollars out of Venezuela to sign with uh, the Mets. You know, So in other words, he's been highly regarded from the beginning, unlike Jose Ramirez, who – who got the basically the minimum of 50 grand signed off a back diamond in the Dominican. Uh, Jimenez is really, that's why the, the uh, tribe back then, as they were, wanted him in the trade uh, because of the, his pedigree. And, you know, he's only 23. So, uh, and I, I wrote even this before he hit some of the homers in Baltimore. I just think he's going to be a star. You know, Naylor's got a chance to be a really good hitter. Miller is just a nice all around hitter. Um, you know, Straw is a terrific center fielder. Uh, his batting average is low, but his on-base percentage is good. He, he walks quite a bit. Uh, so, and, you know, I'm, we've been talking about Oscar Gonzalez for a while. I'm just so happy he's playing well in the beginning because we were banging that drum for about two months. Yeah, I want to talk about Jimenez for a second. So I think the Guardians are known for playing the long game, especially with, with position yeah. players. And you mentioned him being 23, and a lot of people are talking about, geez, he's outproducing Francisco Lindor at this point. Mm -hmm. Did you think it would happen this quickly where things would kind of click for him, or did you think it was going to take him another another year or two? Because he is playing well, and there's more there, too, as you say. I thought he would be a slap hitter. That kind of, I thought he'd be a good glove slap hitter, maybe a younger Omar, that kind of thing. Uh, Fr Terry Francona says something interesting the other day. He said that Jimenez is one of the few – infielders he's seen who is just as good at shortstop as he is at second or if you want to say just as good at second as he is at short he says a lot of guys play both but generally they're they're much better at one spot than the other he said this kid he's that athletic um he's terrific at both he's got he's you know they say why are he strong you know you can see that now with some of the i know he hit the one on the utah street in baltimore but he's crushed a lot of balls they just don't want him to get pool happy. Uh, and, you know, he started to hit after they – he opened uh, 21 at short, was terrible early. April in Cleveland got him, April and May in Cleveland. Then he went down to the minors. He started to hit some, came back, was a little iffy. And then around the end of August last year, he, he hit over 300, I think, the last five or six weeks of the season. And he's picked that up. So I, I, I just really – he's 23. I, I didn't want to go too far, but I did compare him at the age of 23 with Jose Ramirez. And that if you look at Jose's 2016 season and you compare it to Jimenez now, it's very similar. Because at that point, I think Jose hit about 15 or 16 homers that year. Uh, he hit over 300. 
we were happy about all that, but we didn't know you were going to have this guy that one day you're talking about, this guy's going to be one of the best players in Cleveland Indians history or Cleveland, you know, now Guardians history, you know, that kind of stuff. So I don't mean that, but in terms of can he be, a, you know, a cornerstone of what they're doing? Absolutely. Yeah, and just, I mean, you talk about it, a guy with his stature hitting seven home runs at this point of the season and, what, 30 RBIs going into tonight's game against Texas. Yeah, That's uh, it, You don't see that in a lot of middle infielders sometimes. Yeah, hitting a lot of 300. He could walk more, just like our guy Oscar Gonzalez could walk more. But they're not striking out a ton. You know, I am more in favor of contact than just walks. He's got five walks and 34 strikeouts, Terry. So, yes, the, those numbers are right where you suspected. So, yeah, um, that, I mean, that's a bad record. But, but he's also hitting 300 and he's hitting, I think he's got like almost a 900 OPS. So, there you go. Mm -hmm. Yep. One more thing on the Guardians, Terry. So, I was at the game yesterday and I've been, you mentioned Emmanuel Classe earlier. They, the team signed him to a five-year extension. They got some option years, and they have him under control for a while. You watch this guy in in person, especially. He's throwing you know ninety-three mile an hour sliders yeah. that explode into the mitt, and yeah. he just he's got such amazing stuff. Do you think he is kind of the next great or all-star caliber Guardians closer, franchise closer? Do you see that in him, yeah. or is it too early to say that? Oh, I think so. They think so, too. That's why they gave him the contract. Because mm -hmm. remember, this organization hates giving long-term contracts, even early in their careers, to relievers. They wouldn't do it for back when Perez was a pretty good closer for them. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it for Brian Shaw. They wouldn't do it for Cody Andrew Allen. Miller. Andrew and Miller. Miller. They inherited, but that they because they always feel like these guys are going to fall off the cliff at any moment. So they rather overpay year to year than be stuck with a real long contract. But with Classe, they just, as you said, they just think he's enormously uh, talented. It's why they insisted on two years options at a pretty healthy number. I forgot what it is. Uh, I also want to say you go back to that trade they made for Corey Kluber. They targeted Classe and they got him and, you know, was Corey's now at Tampa Bay. So he's since been with three teams, Texas, the Yankees, and now Tampa Bay since that deal was made. All right, let's take a break, Terry. It's a good time. I think we're about 25 minutes in. Uh, when we come back, I want to ask you about Draymond Green and okay. whether the Cavs need a player like him. I want to see what your thoughts are on that. And we'll also talk about your faith column this week, and we'll take a few Hey Terry questions from fans. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We are back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, NBA Finals are in full swing. It's one-to-one uh, -one, heading into game three. And I, I'm watching the NBA Finals, and being a hockey guy like you know I am, I sometimes <laughs> when I watch other sports, it makes me think of hockey. And when I watch Draymond Green play, I mean, here's a guy, I think he's going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. And one of the things that he does that reminds me a little bit of some hockey players is he's kind of a, a pest, what they call him in, mm -hmm. in hockey, where when – Things are kind of flat and your team is kind of lacking some spark. Here's a guy who just gets under the skin of the opponent and rubs them the wrong way. And, you know, the Colorado Avalanche have a player named Nazem Kadri who kind of does that. He kind of works the crowd and and, mm -hmm. and takes a charge at a key time and just throws a little elbow here and there just to annoy people. Um, I, 
I heard I heard Danny Ferry used to be a little bit like that when, when yeah, he played. He yeah, a little bit of sharp yeah. elbows, but it got me thinking about the Cavaliers and kind of the next step for them. And I wanted to get your thoughts since you've been around basketball for so long. Do you think the Cavaliers need – I mean, there's only one Draymond Green, but I'm talking about a player like – you know, even a little bit like Marcus Smart or Bill Lambeer for the Pistons back in the day or, or even Danny Ainge when he was with the Celtics, right? Somebody who's got a little bit of an edge to them. Do you think that's missing from what they need going forward? And if so, who do you th- do? You have any thoughts on who that might be? I don't know. Maybe if you answer yeah, no, have, the first one, then I mean, a key part of that is you have to have some skill to go with it. Uh, Lambeer, by the way, was a dirty player. I mean, he really was flat out dirty. Uh, you know, the Cav- the Cavaliers had him at one point, and they traded him to the Pistons for Phil Phil Hubbard. Um, he uh, he was a wonderful mid range shooter. That's what Lambeer was. But I think Lambeer wanted to hurt people. I was not a Lambeer fan. Uh, when you, uh, Draymond is a terrific passer and he knows how to set picks and he is borderline dirty. <laughs> you know, some players against him. But if Draymond's on your team, you love him. If it's not, you hate him. And he also understands, he just sees the game so well. You could, you could tell that. So I would, uh, uh, it's hard to know who else that would be. You know, I'm trying to think on the Cavaliers, uh, if anybody could sort of develop in that direction. See, I mean, the first guy I thought of was maybe Lamar Stevens, but it's kind of a thing. I mean, yes, you need to have skill, but it kind of needs to come from inside. You can't yeah, teach that yeah. kind of stuff, right? Yeah, he has that, but he, is he good enough? See, that's yeah. the thing. Marcus Smart has talent, too. Um, I love Marcus Smart. Now, I love Marcus Smart's game. Love him. I just thought, and he would rise up in those playoff games against LeBron and the Celtics. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe a Coral or maybe, uh, as you said, uh, who else did you mention? I'm sorry. Lamar Stevens, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, Penn State, I was thinking, yeah. Maybe one of those guys. I do not see a big guy in the roster now with that kind of stuff. But, you know, they, that, that sort of is, um, is kind of like the birthday kick candles on the on the birthday cake you know you got you got your cake there and you know right now they're trying to frost it and get another point guard uh another rubio tough point guard and and some other uh, perhaps another shooter uh but you'd, you'd like to have that but those guys do help you you know go now when Le- on lebron's teams for the most part uh, they didn't have that guy whether it's cleveland or um in uh, miami so now i remember they did have a uh, when LeBron was here the first time towards the end of his career, they had Ben Wallace, and he was some of that. But I, nobody else immediately comes to mind. But the, the uh, Kendrick that, Perkins a little bit too, right? Well, he, he was the same. Enough. He like, didn't play him. Yeah, yeah, he was at the, he was at the, the end. Floor. He was near the end, right. Yeah, you got to be on the floor. See, that's the thing about Draymond. You could keep him out there. He's going to make sure that ball moves. He's going to set the picks. He's going to switch on defense, and he's going to get somebody really angry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good combination. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think of uh, when teams are drafting in the NFL and they look for offensive linemen who have a little bit of a nasty streak. Yeah. They always mm-hmm. call it that. And I'm, I'm, maybe it's somebody the Cavs can look for with one of their later picks after yeah, or 14. And, or another yeah. team. Or another Maybe. team. Yeah, there's guys out there. You can find – I'm just wondering if it – yeah, it depends what you want to be, right? Kind of like you're saying. Do you do you need that? There's some teams that need it and some don't. So And also, see, that guy has to be on a team that's a good team with – highly skilled players around him. When he's out there with Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and some of their more younger, talented players, 
Um, it, it works. It fits. It really works because see, he doesn't need the ball, um, and they have enough because nobody guards him. By the way, you notice that nobody guards him like ten feet from the basket. He can just shoot all he wants, and when he does shoot, you can see why nobody guards him. So that's a that's a key thing. But it's it's an interesting concept. Yeah. All right. So the other thing kind of hanging out there for the Cavaliers this offseason is what's next with Colin Sexton. And I know we've talked about should they offer him the uh, qualifying offer. And it seems like you seem to think they should. But uh, where do you stand with Colin Sexton right now? And how do you see this playing out? The qualifying offer is a little more than seven million. And uh, I would give him a choice. Say, okay, the one year qualifying offer is yours. You're coming off the bench. We're going to need you to score, but we're not playing two six-foot guards. So that's not a knock on you. It's just it's how things fit. Look what Ricky Rubio did coming off the bench. You can come off the bench. You could be very effective with this. Or I might say, you know, how about we'll give you two years and, you know, 18, 20 million, something like that. So it gives you a little bit of time. Because remember, this guy had a meniscus. I missed that whole year. I, I found that a bit odd that he was out that long with a meniscus injury. That's not that big ACL. but And he works hard, so I'm sure it has nothing to do with his rehab. So that, that might be a, a way to go. But I'm not going in big. I got to pay. I gotta pay. I'm probably going to have to give Garland a, a maximum contract. I know I'm going to give Mobley a maximum contract. And I got Allen at $20 million. I'm not throwing 15 or $20 million at Colin Sexton. Forget that. You know, that's that, and I'm and I've got you know, Levert, whatever he is, 18 million, but that's just from one year, and Danny Ferry. But I was talking about the long range stuff, so uh, if we see how that plays out now, you know, his agent is Rich Paul, who's LeBron, he's out of the LeBron camp, and you know, who else Rich Paul represents on the Cavaliers? Darius Garland. So that's kind of an, I always kind of watch that. That's sort of the, the get, that's, as they say, that's the curtain behind the curtain. All right. More entry coming uh, this off season. We'll see. So you think the two years might work for Sexton because it would give him a little peace of mind. He probably would like to stay here and see this thing grow. Yeah. And yeah, that could work. If, you don't know what he's thinking though, after coming off of last season. Yeah, so. And it's hard to know what his value is around the league. I mean, if you're another team, exactly how much, how do you value him? He, All right, Terry. Played 11 games. That was it. Okay. Yeah, let's move on. Uh, let's get into your faith column a little bit, your faith in you column that runs every Saturday morning on cleveland.com and then every Sunday morning in the Plain Dealer. This week you write about people who've lost parents to drug abuse, and you you write about how you met somebody named Frank. Well, not really named Frank, but you, you that's a name you gave him as kind of – but you actually met this gentleman in person, and he kind of – really connected with you over what had happened to him. Why don't you talk about that experience? Yeah, we have a mutual friend and she works at Walmart and he worked at Walmart. And so she had told me a little bit about him and then she kind of put us together to talk because she thought maybe talking to another male would help. I mean, I'm there and, and then I, but all she knew is that her, his mother had died. And then when I talked to him, I said, oh, well, gee, I'm sorry about your mom. He goes, yeah, it was exactly a week ago today. I said, oh, that had to be tough. And he was quiet for a while looking down. He said, well, uh, you know, she had a drug problem for a long time. I said, oh. He said, so, uh, I mean, I, well, I, I really grew up with my grandparents. I said, well, that's, you know, that's that's hard. I mean, what do you say? And I was just kind of listening. And, and we talked a little more. And and what it, the, the theme of the column began, we usually hear about 
parents or grandparents who are worried about their children with the drugs. But there's a whole group of children who grew up in alcoholic homes or in drug addicted homes and the impact on them. And so I called uh, two people they know that are involved that Father Bob Steck from St. Ambrose in Brunswick is on the uh, Greater Than Heroin Commission and he's been involved a lot with that. And then another guy, very interesting guy, he's Pastor Anthony Parker. That's his weekend job, but he's also bailiff Anthony Parker uh, in the Cuyahoga court system. And he's also magistrate Anthony Parker in the village of North Randall. And his wife is a social worker. So he's been involved in a lot of that. And one of the things he mentioned to me is that the embarrassment that the children of alcoholic addicted people feel. And I thought of the movie Hoosiers. And there's a scene in there where one of the players, dad shows up at the game and he's hammered, you know. And they show the kid and he wants to just dig a hole right through that floor and hide. And some of us who've had that person in our family know what they feel. So that's what the column was about, uh, kind of how we cope with that. And he was, and that Frank in this case was trying, how do I grieve? It's like, I feel bad about my mom, but she, you know. But the other thing that was tough about that is that when that parent dies, whatever glimmer of hope you had that maybe she would sober up is gone. Because sometimes you think maybe if they sober up, they could, I'll finally have that mom. I'll finally have that dad that I wanted. So it's a, it's a tough one about the heart, but it was uh, one that um, I think it would touch some people. Yeah. And one point that also st- stuck out to me was, was just, and you discussed this after interview, the interviews you did is you, the, the children shouldn't blame themselves yes. for whatever happens because, and it's just like in a divorce or, or a situation yeah. like this, it's, it's not the, the children's fault, but a lot of times they feel like it is for whatever various well, reasons. We're in a spiritual battle in this world. That's how I feel. That's where I come from, from that type of thing. It's not that there's a devil under every rock or whatever, but we are in emotional and spiritual battles in life. And I, as I would say, the evil one will use these things um, to, especially in, in that situation to take us down. And, you know, if you have that situation, like oftentimes I'm telling parents when I've maybe ministered with their kids, either at jail or at the Haven arrest, that it's not your fault. It really isn't. Especially if you're telling me you got four kids and three are doing great and this one's here, it's certainly not your fault. Well, in this other case, by the way, the kid says to me, Frank says, he's, he's in his late 20, he goes, man, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do none of that stuff. He goes, I've seen so much of that growing up. And I said, well, that's one good thing coming out of this. And and talking to uh, uh, both Bob Steck and, and uh, Anthony Parker, I said, what are you? And they said both. It's like especially children of alcoholics. They tend to either end up in the drinking culture themselves or they don't drink at all. There's not too much in the middle. Interesting. All right. Hey, catch that column, Terry's Faith in You column. Like I said, it'll be uh, up this weekend online and in print. So, all right. We have a few Hey Terry questions, Terry. You ready? Mm -hmm. We haven't really talked about this. Uh, Ben Hughes says, Hey, Terry, how serious are the talks about Odell Beckham Jr. returning? And would that allow the locker room problems of last year to continue into this season? Uh, What do you think about Odell Beckham Jr. coming back? Potentially, there's some rumors flying around about it, Terry. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Miles Garrett was sort of courting him online. You have to consider that he had ACL surgery for the second time in a little over a year on the same knee. And he had it after the Super Bowl. So that's like February. So it's going to take nine months or whatever to come back. When has he even come back? And then on top of that, I just don't think the Browns want to go down that road again uh, with him. It's not just a knock on him. Most of the players really liked him and all that. But I just think between the injury and that, uh, I expect him to show up back with the Rams. Because, see, they could wait on him. And, you know, if they figure if they get him back for December in the playoffs, fine. Uh, But you can't dismiss the injury history with this guy. I've all been saying that for years because it's real. Yeah, and, and as we've talked about, once players hit 30 years old and he's right there, uh, yeah. the Browns' analytics tell them probably not not, not a good move sometimes. So, yeah. all right. Uh, this one is from Michael Kendall. He says, hey, Terry, what are the chances David, David Njoku is going to be used as Jarvis Landry's replacement? Can the offense make the adjustment to a more tight end friendly system? Well, David, you know what? Uh, I mean – the, the slot receiver right now, which is primarily what Jarvis was, who do you think it's going to be? So you're going to have Cooper and DPJ, and then you're going to have David Bell. Yeah, I think David Bell's your guy. So I guess my question is, you, you were talking earlier in the podcast about the Browns reinventing their passing game a little bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is what Michael's getting at. Could you see a world where David Njoku is split out wide in trips with DPJ and Cooper where he's not lined up as a tight end and the Browns do move him a little bit outside, but not really a lot. I can't remember if I've ever seen him outside the hash marks, for example, could you, could you see them thinking about maybe trying something like that? Given his catching radius, how big he is, how athletic he is. Mm -hmm. You think that you, could you see them even trying something like that potentially? Why not? You just paid him 20. You just guaranteed him 25 million over two years. Why not? Um, you're saying by that contract that you think you haven't seen the, I am, I'm tired of best version of themselves thing. Cause basically we're not talking about the best version of Deshaun, uh, of Nago, Nago, excuse me, of David Njoku. Cause we haven't seen all, much. That's all that good for a whole full season. I think he caught 56 balls in 2018 and that's, that's it. No, they need to really get a role for him where he is a big part of the passing game whether he's in the slot or, or whatnot, but, and Stefanski himself said that, you know, we have big plans for him. Well, I want to see it. And I, that fits into that thing that I mentioned before about reinventing the passing game. Um, so I just think it has nothing to do with being Jarvis. I think it has to do with making the tight ends a priority in this quote unquote tight end friendly offense that hasn't produced a lot for the tight ends in the two years that uh, Stefanski has been here. All right. Well, let's see how that plays out. It could be a formational thing where they put him in different spots or it yeah. could be where they make him the primary receiver on a lot of what they already do So, or a combination. So let's see how that goes. All right. This one is from Greg Bollinger, Terry. He says, hey, Terry, what Browns position group concerns you the most? Still feels to me we are thin at defensive tackle. Taven Bryant doesn't instill a lot of confidence. What do you think? I agree. Um, it's, you start naming those defensive tackles and you don't get real Jordan Elliott and Tommy Togia and a couple other guys. It's nothing. Um, 
there's nothing that's right now to be excited about. And I know sometimes the young defensive tackles come through. Uh, but, you know, the guys that started last year, Malik McDonald, Malik Jackson, they're gone. And so they better um, – I, I think they're going to have to figure that out. Now they've, they've talked about sometimes maybe some of the defensive ends, perhaps inside. Um, I think the right kid, they talked about that. But uh, I'm not sure how far you're going to go down that. I mean, here's a rookie from Alabama, Birmingham, a defensive end. Are you really going to start talking about putting him inside some? I don't know. Um, but I agree. But their big, their big fear feel is – uh, excuse me, their main priorities when they put their defense together are pass rushers from the defensive ends. You know, you look where the money went. And then the back, they say the back seven, but they're really talking about the secondary. And I am in total agreement with them. You know, I always use this. They just say you can't have enough defensive backs. And I say they're like pitchers because you can have enough because they always get hurt. So that's where their money goes on the defensive backs and on the pass rushers and they just think they could kind of fill in uh, with the uh, uh, with the defensive tackles a key part too David you you're really good on formations now how can the linebackers help that in terms of stopping the running game yeah yeah I mean again I'm not I don't have the analytics in front of me but the way I feel like they think about it is if we give up 3.8 yards on a handoff or a draw play up the middle against our under salary defensive tackles and our linebackers, that's fine. If we give up a 60 yard pass that gets over our safeties and DBs and we don't have a pass rush, that's 60 yards. Mm-hmm. And it just feels to me like they've built, like you said, it's kind of like an umbrella approach where they're trying to protect the deep, the deep parts of the field and the sides, because that's where a lot of the big plays happen, especially given how much passing is being done these days. And they're like, Hey, we'll take our hits in the middle. We can always send seven, eight guys up to stop the run if it gets to that point. But, you got to guard the pass. You got to guard the pass. And I think you're right. That's where their heads are at right now. And when they look at their linebackers, they want them to be quick laterally. In other words, running side to side to stop some of the sweeps and that. So that's what uh, uh, JOK does well. They think Walker does well. They are very excited about Jacob Phillips. Now, this is year three of Jacob Phillips, who hasn't been able to stay healthy the first two. They think he could be your real kind of banger in the middle, along with having that speed. Um, third round pick LSU. So this is, I mean, it's wide open for him. Now, granted, Anthony Walker is probably your starting middle linebacker, but Phillips could play a lot if he could stay healthy. All right. Hey, if you have a question, you want to get on the Hey Terry segment of the podcast, you can hit Terry up on his Facebook page or send us an email at sports at cleveland.com and put Hey Terry or Terry's talking in the subject line. So, all right, Terry, that's going to do it. Uh, Let's give one more shot to your Appearance. You're going to be talking on Tuesday, June 14th. Let's mention it one more time so people can get out yes, there and that'll see it. Be at, uh, yeah, Walls of Books in Parmatown, the bookstore Walls of Books in Parmatown next Tuesday, 630. So come on out. And it's free, right? It's free. They'll try right. to sell you a book, but, you know, they won't charge you admission. So there you go. It's a small price to pay. So, yeah. all right, Terry, everybody go out, try and be the best version of yourselves this <laughs> next week. Boy, does that get old. <laughs> And uh, hey, we'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.